everyone, and welcome to the I Dream of Dance Dance Talk podcast, highlighting women leaders in art, health, education, and innovation. I Dream of Dance is an international nonprofit organization whose mission is to empower youth through dance and leadership. This first episode of season one is entitled Overcoming Barriers, and we introduce Dr. Gabriela Gonzalez, an amazing woman who is also deputy director at Intel Corporation. We can't wait for all of you to meet her, so let's get right into it. My name is Amanda, and myself and my co-host Erica will be leading the podcast today. We started with some introductions to Dr. Gonzalez and then asked her to speak a little bit about herself. Well, it's great to meet you both. Uh, As you know, my name is Gabby Gonzalez. I'm a director of STEM education initiatives, and uh, I also... um, I'm operations manager for the foundation, for the Intel Foundation. Um, my background, educational background, is in engineering mostly, except my last uh, degree, which was at Arizona State, is in social science. So I departed from the technical a little bit more into the, you know, engineering into uh, a little bit more of the social sciences. And uh, I spent uh, half of my career in engineering. And uh, it's, it's turning out the other half is more um, leveraging that knowledge in engineering to see how we can get more women and uh, people of color represented in, in the specifically engineering and computer science fields. Wow, I mean, it's incredible. But um, I guess we'll start at the basics first. Um, what initially like piqued your interest in the field or just in STEM in general? Like what made you realize that like STEM was made for you? Wow, um, that's, a, that's a really good question. Um, I always say that engineering found me instead of the other way around. I had no clue growing up um, what engineering was about. I'm an immigrant, so I came to the U.S. when I was 13, and I didn't speak a word of English at the time. And I um, started uh, junior high in Texas, And then my family moved to Washington where I did high school. But even in high school, I struggled a bit with the language part. Interestingly enough, I was in AP English, (laughs) even though English was my second language. Um, So in high school, I, uh, you know, my family, uh, when we came to the US, uh, we came from a middle class family in Mexico. And when we came to the States, it was my mom and five children. And so we were uh, uh, welcoming to the United States through the welfare system. And so we had, you know, public housing and food stamps and all that good, all the good benefits uh, that uh, the government supports uh, low income families with. My mom was the only person uh, that was supporting the family at the time. And she herself was an immigrant with little to no English. And so, um, again, just to answer your question is I, I never really thought I could even go to college. You know, um, when we moved from Wash or from Texas to Washington State, literally border to border almost, uh, my my high school counselor, uh, I don't think, uh, really understood understood the potential that I had in terms of academic uh, uh, futures and uh, didn't really prepare me for, for co- help me prepare for college. I didn't take any calculus or physics or anything like that in high school. I didn't even take uh, calculus uh, or, you know, um, uh, and, and so when, 
when I was about to get graduate from high school, again, I thought I, I had uh, research options like the military, uh, like uh, community colleges, uh, tech schools, vocational schools, because I also couldn't afford college. I didn't have the means um, to pay for college, let alone think about, you know, all of the other expenses that come with college. And so I was very lucky. I think things happen for a reason. I was part of a, uh, a church, uh, a Catholic church that had a youth group. And the leader of that youth group happened to be the first Native American uh, to graduate from the University of Washington in Seattle with a degree in mechanical engineering. It just so happened. And so when he asked me what I was gonna do after high school, I told him I didn't know, I, I, I couldn't afford college. And he said, you know, I know some people at the university, let me take you there. And um, the University of Washington, Seattle was 90 miles south of my hometown of Bellingham, Washington. And uh, he introduced me to a lady uh, who asked me, you know, are you interested in engineering? And I, and I told her, I said, I don't know what it is. And she said, well, if you're interested, you know, we have uh, scholarships for women that are interested in engineering. And I basically told her, sign me up. It doesn't matter what it is. <laughs> I'll figure it out. If that helps me to get into college, that's what I'll do. So that's, that's how I came into STEM you know, really as a way to uh, get into college and, um, you know, uh, an opportunity really to, to try something new um, that could help me uh, sort of leave poverty behind, you know, everything that I knew up until that point. So um, again, I didn't even know what engineering was. And then once I was um, in that sort of uh, learning path, if you will, um, I was talking to some, some folks uh, that I knew and I had met and they told me, whatever you do, don't go into electrical or aerospace because those are not for women. And so to me, that was like, really? Okay, well, I'm gonna go for electrical because I always like tink tinkering with electronics and, and it just sounded like the closest thing. Um, again, this was many years ago, You know, computer engineering was not, a field in itself, it was sort of part of electrical. So it was kind of, if you were interested in computers, that's where you went. So I, I challenged that perception and I applied uh, to the Department of Electrical Engineering after my sophomore year, because you, at that time, at least at the University of Washington, you couldn't just choose a major and, and, and be in the major. You had to take two years of the, all the required courses in order to apply to the department. And again, I was lucky enough to get to get into the department and graduate with a bachelor's, uh, you know, a few years later. So that's that's how I came into my major, and 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 then of course after that I I applied for jobs um, in that in that space. So that's that's how engineering came into my life. It wasn't something that I I intentionally chose, uh, you know, or something that I had dreamed about. Uh, I didn't even know what the word meant. I didn't know what people did. And then once I was in school, it was mostly men. You know, I was often the only woman sometimes in my classes or, you know, a very small number of women in my classes. Um, so and then, of course, when I joined the profession, it was sort of the same thing, you know, more men, <laughs> more older men, um, uh, hardly any women. So 
I hope that answers your question. It's a little bit of a long story, but. Oh, it absolutely does. Thank you. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, that that is that is amazing. You're able to come overcome that language barrier, financial barrier, being in a totally new nation when you're that young. That's that's really inspiring to all of us. So thank you so much for sharing your story. And our next question was, oh, our next question was actually, um, it actually was, did you have your career path all planned out from the start? And I think you sort of touched on that. I think a lot of people, especially my age, I'm pressured to think I need to know exactly what I want to do. I need to know exactly how I'm going to get there. Um, and I, the next question was, did you know exactly where you wanted to be and exactly where you want to go as a teen? It seems like engineering was sort of like a chance that just like it just happened. Um, do you have anything more to add to that? Yes. I mean, life is full of twists and turns. You know, you as much as you can plan, sometimes life throws you you know, some curveballs and, and, and you have to figure out how to respond to them. I think the biggest thing that I learned, you know, without even knowing what engineering was, is um, that I, I did have an engineering mindset. And what I mean by that is I like solving problems. And when, it, when you boil it down to its root, that's what engineering is, is using science tools to solve real life problems. And again, you know, when I was uh, younger and I didn't have any money, I, you know, I would open up the television when uh, it wasn't working to try to figure out how to make it work. I didn't have tools. I used forks and knives and whatever, whatever I could find. Um, um, I also, you know, would try to fix my blow dry, hair blow dryer, you know, and, and just things like that because we couldn't afford to buy new. So I always try to tinker and try to fix things, even though I had no idea what I was doing. I really liked uh, to solve problems. And because I was so young when I started, I started working and I left uh, my house when I was 16. You know, I was always trying to figure out how I'm going to pay rent, you know, where I'm going to work. I, I did a lot of uh, jobs, uh, um, you know, uh, after school. And uh, so I was always working, even through school, I was working um, but I had to kind of figure out on my own, <laughs> excuse me, how to how to get a, a place to live, how to how to buy food, how to, you know, I had a car, so I had to pay insurance and get so I had to figure all of that on my own. And I think again, my brain just sort of always was thinking about how to solve the problem. You know, uh, again, I was uh, very fortunate and blessed in having a lot of mentors along the way, people who were willing to help me. If I didn't know something, I would go and research it and find people who could help me. I, I would never just, you know, um, uh, feel like, you know, the earth was just disappearing from under me and I, I was in crisis. I, I, I don't like being in crisis mode. Again, I, I'm a doer. So I, I always think, okay, I'm in this problem. How can I solve it? Where do I need to go? Who do I need to call? And remember, there's no internet, there's no cell phones at the time that I was growing up. So I really had to use my two feet to get me to places and ask questions in person and, and find information and go to the library and go to the office of financial aid and, you know, whatever I needed to do um, to, get, to get by. So I think at the end of the day, Again, being a problem solver was, was really what helped me uh, be a better engineer and understand finally what engineering was all about. Wow, yeah. 
I mean, that's incredible. Like the fork and like knives, the hair, like, I mean, it just kind of foreshadows like your whole life. And that's, that's incredible because you didn't know it at the time. Um, yeah, I, I also, I also really liked how you touched on um, the importance of your network and collaborating with others. I think it's also a stereotype that people in STEM or academia in general, they're very like isolated and they're on their own track trying to do everything themselves, like competing with everyone else. But I think collaborating is sort of the essence of STEM. So that I really liked how you touched on that as well. Thank you. Yes, absolutely. I mean, we're never alone if we seek help and we're willing to accept help and, you know, not be too proud to to accept and seek that help. Uh, there's always a lot of really good people that are willing to help you if only you have the courage to ask. So I, like I said, I, I always look for solutions. I, I'm a solution-driven person. Uh, I don't like to wallow in, again, in crisis or being... Um, paralyzed, you know, by problems. And uh, again, I, that also forced me to grow up very quickly, you know, and, and kind of knowing how to survive on my own. Right, right. Um, well, just getting the questions more career specific. Um, you said you were like, and you used to be in electrical engineering, but now you're in a different science. Um, but in either topic, what are some specific research projects or topics you've worked on, or any exciting, exciting projects that you are passionate about? Yes, I mean, absolutely. Uh, even though my, my field was in electrical engineering, I was introduced like my first actual professional job um, in a big company was at Xerox. Uh, that used to, that company used to be known uh, and it used to be really big because of, of the copiers, right? Um, mm -hmm. They invented the, 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 the uh, process of, of uh, copy uh, and Xeroxing. Uh, uh, documents and, and printing. I mean, they're pioneers in this space, in this field. Also the Xerox Research Park, uh, they actually invented the first computer, the first, you know, uh, and, and, and the mouse and, and just a lot of innovation out of that research facility. But when I first joined Xerox, I joined a research team and my very first project was really exciting because again, this is, <laughs> this is way before your time, but uh, everybody used to have printers at their desk connected physically, you know, through a cable to their computers. Uh, network printing was just starting to, to take hold. And so I worked on sensors that would, you know, I did research to figure out what, are, what were the best sensors to detect the type of paper that was in the drawer. You know, whether it was, again, transparencies at the time, or if it was yellow paper or white paper or blue paper, green paper, you know, different colors, different thicknesses of paper. And, and so I helped a, a research team, um, again, sort of figure out what combination of sensors and light sources could give us the information we needed to detect the type of paper that was in the drawer. That again, you know, it seems simple, but now that, you know, we don't even use printing hardly anymore. <laughs> but at the time, uh, network printing uh, and, and the savings that came along with that, right? Because again, 90% of the time you didn't use your printer. Um, so sharing a printer was sort of a new concept uh, where people could all share a printer, uh, but people didn't like the inconvenience of walking up to the printer and making sure everything was ready before they sent their jobs there. So that was, a, again, one of the really exciting uh, projects that I worked very early on in my career. Uh, and, and it included, you know, being uh, participating in a, applying for a patent. 
you know, so recent out of school, being in that work was really exciting. Um, but that was only like a rotational uh, job at the very beginning of, of my career. Um, after that rotation in research, I went to manufacturing. And again, manufacturing is a whole other world uh, when it comes to engineering. It's, it's, it's real time, you know, I mean, machines need to keep running so that they can produce products so that the company can sell it and make a profit. And so I went into manufacturing and I started kind of as a systems person developing applications and programs to help improve the quality of the products, to detect defects in the line, to uh, document those defects and create databases. So again, this was before uh, we know computer computing as we know it today. Um, everybody used to have all their applications in their computers, in their like physical towers of computers at their desk. There, were no, there was no laptops at the time. Um, and so that went from that. And so working on projects that again, found that, that introduced ways of uh, housing all the applications on one computer so that many people could share them instead of housing them in your own computer. That was a, a concept called client server at the time. And uh, because I was a systems person, you know, I also learned how to design databases, how to design systems, how to design interfaces um, that that end users could could uh, interact with. And and so, even though it wasn't research necessarily, again, you, you were doing things that that were kind of new and on the edge of technology at the time. So that was another really interesting um, uh, project in terms of building systems. And then more recently, you know, with my, my jobs at Intel, I joined Intel uh, initially uh, as an industrial engineer, even though my major has never been industrial engineering. But again, when you work in manufacturing, you, you know, through your job, you, you experience a lot of different roles, even if they don't exactly match your major. Um, so I had this industrial, exper industrial engineering experience because I had been in manufacturing. So I learned a lot of, a lot of those concepts on the job. And uh, when I came to Intel, I, I did that for a little while. And then I went into process engineering, which is more specific now to my major semiconductor manufacturing. Um, and the processes, again, just working in an Intel fabrication facility is like working in a you know, space station. I mean, the, the requirements, you know, you, the clean room, you know, you can't introduce any, man, you know, minute particles into the clean environment because the processors that are like the size of your pinky nail, you know, it's a, it, 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 it has billions of processors. So like a, a drop of sweat, a, a, you know, a, a little thing, a, a particle of skin or anything that drops on those things like kill the entire process. So it's, it's just a, an amazing technology. I mean, few people in the world, you know, get to see how these uh, microprocessors are manufactured. And these microprocessors run everything <laughs> that we know of today. You know, the cloud would not be possible without microprocessors. You know, smart cars, internet of things, you know, uh, virtual reality, I mean, artificial intelligence, uh, cybersecurity, all of these things came from, you know, companies like Intel uh, that where, where I work now, you know, they made all of these technology innovations possible. And again, being part of all that and, and being part of the actual process that, that built these microprocessors that went out to the world, that was another great project. Um, and, and again, it's, it's just a whole 
you know, it's a whole different level of game when it comes to trying to solve problems that your eyes can't see that are atomic in nature. And you have all of these very expensive equipment and, and electron, you know, electron microscopes and, 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 and machines that occupy, you know, entire, you know, buildings uh, uh, to like lithography and etching and all of these processes, you know, because they're etching into sand basically. Uh, to make this microprocessor. So, I mean, that whole technology is just so captivating to me. And again, this is what made the internet possible. Um, you know, I remember when I was in school back then, people started talking about this thing called the World Wide Web and nobody really knew what it was. <laughs> uh, it, different times, again, it, uh, being a witness to this growth in technology to me has been, you know, kind of a, a unique opportunity to be on the side of technology that creates, you know, the um, the means for people to connect together and to do things, um, to communicate, to uh, keep them safe, and all of these things. Um, you know, again, I, I think life has a weird way of uh, happening sometimes, and I found myself in in these sort of situations because of my personal life that, you know, uh, uh, sort of walked me. I mean, I, I, I never thought I, I would work at Intel, but through life circumstances, I found myself at, in, at Intel. I never, you know, actively looked to join Intel. That wasn't in my mind. Oh, I want to go work for this company. You know, it was uh, life circumstances that led me here. So I think we all have different paths and different life circumstances that happen to us. And it's, it's, it's about what we do when those things happen, about the decisions that we make. Um, you know, do we take the easy path or do we take a challenge, you know? So hopefully that, that answers that question. <laughs> it does, thank you. And you seem so passionate about what you do. It's just amazing to listen. Um, I think Amanda is gonna ask you the next question. Yes, I have the next question. That, that was an amazing response. So. Um, we read that you recently completed your PhD, right? In yes. human and social dimensions of science and technology. So congratulations, that's an amazing accomplishment. Um, that's awesome. So, and I actually, I came up with this question cause I'm very curious. Um, I think it's actually sort of a myth that people see STEM and like the humanities as two like totally separate fields. Like you're either a STEM person or you like humanities. Um, and I was wondering if you could talk a little bit to the interconnectedness of STEM and the humanities or maybe like absolutely. science and social science. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Again, you know, uh, back in the day and even today, to some extent, uh, engineering is very isolated from the humanities. Um, and, and, and mostly it's due to the amount of information that, you know, you can fit within a four year degree. Um, you know, there isn't a lot of time to incorporate a lot of other things outside of what you need to become an engineer. Um, there are some electives, you know, every college has electives, but they're very minimal. Um, so when I, after about 12 years of working in manufacturing in the fabrication of, of microprocessors, I, I noticed that again, you know, there weren't a lot of women in, in manufacturing at Intel. And I remember when I was in college that 
somebody somewhere at some conference, you know, said by the year 2005, we will have reached parity in uh, gender representation for engineering. And I was looking around and I, I, I didn't see how that could be possible. So I started asking questions and the answers that I was getting were not satisfying, satisfactory. You know, it's like, where are the women? And then I started looking at the data from the National Science Foundation on, you know, graduation and education statistics. And it just showed me that the trend of women graduating with degrees in engineering was flat. And, and it's been flat for over 50 years. I mean, it's incredible. Uh, despite, you know, probably billions or trillions of dollars invested in, in um, increasing that representation over the years. And so um, that's when, um, you know, the, the thought of going back to school uh, really triggered in my mind. Um, I wanted to go find out why, why this was the case and why wasn't anyone being held responsible or accountable for making absolutely no progress. Um, and so when I started to think about, again, the intersections between technology and social science or humanities, I realized, you know, what I didn't understand was the people side, you know, what drives cultures, what drives um, how we define and identify ourselves, how do we decide what uh, what kind of careers we, we should look at, you know, what are the things that get in the way? And again, I didn't have the, the academic knowledge to answer all those questions. So I decided to go back to school and I did all of this part-time. I, I, you know, I never took any time off to, to go back to school uh, full-time. So while I was working, I was going to school and taking courses that made me think differently. Uh, I'll be honest, at first, when I started taking some of these social science courses, I didn't understand what they were talking about. It was like, again, a whole different planet. Um, I couldn't understand the language. I had to read articles two or three times. I had to look up every other word because the, just the language of academics is so different from you know engineering. Engineering is formulas and, and technical terms and everything that I was used to. Um, and so I had to re-educate myself and, and really try to understand, again, sort of the human side of what is causing this problem to persist because it's not the technology. And, and I had heard, again, uh, you know, at the time, this was almost 10, 11 years ago, um, when I went into the research, they would, uh, the, the research would cite sort of the same sort of um, reasons why there weren't more women in engineering. And it was all, well, we don't have enough role models. Well, girls don't like math. Well, you know, um, engineering is too hard. Women don't like hard subjects. And I was like, this is all babble. I don't believe it. I don't believe those are the reasons why we don't have more women. Um, you know, there's gotta be something else because uh, it almost point in, in most of the research that, that was available at the time is changing now. But at the time it was, you know, pointing to the women, like we had projects about how to get more women into engineering, but mostly the women were doing the work. Most of the women were doing the research. <clears throat> and most of the research was, what's wrong with these women? You know, what's wrong with, with us that we can't get into engineering? And again, I don't think we are the problem. I always said, you know, girls are not broken. You know, they're not deficient girls can achieve anything they set their mind to. There is something inherent, inherently problematic about engineering that 
women don't like about it, you know? And women have no problem going into the, the sciences and the medical field, which law, you know, other fields that I think are equally challenging, if not more. So it's, you know, because they always, again, every time I heard men talk, it was like, well, you know, women are not suited for engineering. And I'm like, no, that's, that's BS. That, I don't believe that. I think that the problem lies in the systems. I think the problem lies in the culture. I, you know, uh, things that we keep perpetuating, you know, the roles of men versus women, how we see each other, um, how we interact with each other, you know, all of those things, how, how we are raised in our families, you know, uh, is still very much gendered. Uh, even in today's day and age, you know, in some families, they're still very traditional about the roles of men and women. In some cultures are still very traditional about the roles of men and women today in the 21st century. So um, I, I, you know, when I started to look for programs that, that would help me understand that lack of representation of women, specifically women of color, um, that's when I, I, you know, because I live in Phoenix, I, I went to Arizona State University and I just did a search and I came across this program. And I, I mean, again, immediately picked up the phone. There was a contact number, a name. I called him. He happened to answer the phone when I called. Uh, and he, he was the director of the program. And I, I explained to him who I was, what my my research questions were, you know, what I wanted to do and was this the right program for me? And what I came to find out is this particular program um, and ASU is known as an innovative uh, university as well. Um, they took people like myself with, you know, physics and engineering and technical backgrounds and helped us understand how, you know, engineering technologies were affecting people. And, and humans and how, you know, depending on who came up with the product or who came up with a solution, it could be biased because there was no, no other perspectives brought into that product development or into that research, you know. Uh, they always say, well, research is never objective because depending on the bias of the researcher, you know, that's what the outcomes are going to be. So I, what I, what I, I enjoyed about the program is we had a lot of people like myself trying to understand the human side of things. Again, how does solar energy impact communities with low income? Because they can't afford solar panels. So there's all these, you know, sort of interactive questions between technology and who can afford them and, and who are they who they're who are who are they designed for? Um, and then you also had a lot of social scientists who were trying to understand the impact of technology on people, on society, on culture. So this was a really nice hybrid of a program where I felt right at home. Um, but like this, there are now many programs, you know, um, across many universities that um, in, in many departments are now trying to uh, create new centers of excellence or new schools of, of thought, you know, uh, uh, on how to merge both technology and humanity, because they're not separate. They go hand in hand, you know. Uh, if you don't understand one side, how can you be a good engineer, you know? So I, I, I like the fact that again, you know, 10 years or 20 years after I graduated with a technical degree, uh, that opportunity would have never been available to me at that time. But today uh, you can see there's a lot more convergence 
between the technology uh, areas and the social science areas. And there's uh, a lot of programs that, that combine the two in some way. Yeah, wow. that's awesome. I'm, I'm, I'm really glad to hear that there are more programs and um, that intersection is expanding. So yeah, thank you so much. Yeah, and then that was mostly a question for Amanda's curiosity, but a question that I had was, I think you touched on it a little bit, um, like experiences like that you had like difficulty in as being a woman. And I know you said that barriers, like, like you had to confront ideas, but were there any like other like experiences or like stories you've like over had to overcome? Yeah, of course. I mean, you know, when, when you're a, a person like me that has, you know, these intersecting identities, right? I'm Mexican, I'm an immigrant, I'm a woman, I'm a woman of color, I have Asian background, I have a Native American background, I have, you know, different, I, I've, I've experienced different, different socioeconomic status throughout my life. Um, it, there's a lot of, uh, it's very nuanced and it's not, it's, it's complex, right? I'm, as a person, very complex in, in my makeup and in my identities. Um, so oftentimes in my earlier career, I wasn't sure if I was experiencing something because I was a woman or because I was Mexican or because I was a Mexican woman or because I was poor. You know, I didn't know what was driving some of the experiences that I had, <laughs> excuse me, but, some of the things that I experienced, I mean, again, as a woman, uh, in general, being raised as a, as a gender woman, you know, uh, before we had a, anything other than binary gender identities, uh, and everybody was either a man or a woman in, in the eyes of society. Um, I think that, you know, like when I was in high school, I think the bias was because I was poor and perhaps because I was Mexican, not necessarily because I was a woman. Um, when I had my first experience outside of, uh, when I graduated college and I went to work, I remember, I mean, and this was explicit, my, my first supervisor told me, you know, I, I need to tell you something. I'm not, you know, uh, I'm not happy that, that you are part of my group. This was in my research group um, because I, I don't think highly of Mexican people. And he told me that, uh, you know, he told me what his perception and stereotype were of what Mexican people did or were. And I set out to prove I'm wrong. And thankfully, you know, right before I left, he said, I wish I could keep you. you you've really changed the way that I think about race. Uh, and, 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 and right before I left, he's like, and, and just to show you, he goes, I, I'm gonna take a vacation in Mexico, you know, to try to understand better. So I was really happy about that. But again, I don't think that had to do with me being a woman. Now, in the labs during that time, again, you have to think this was over 25 years ago. Um, I remember walking into the labs uh, of, of, the, of the engineers that I was working with. And of course, there'd be calendars of women in bikinis or, you know, things like that. Just very male, you know, kind of a, a cave, you know, man cave kind of a feeling. Um, and, and I felt uncomfortable, you know. And, and of course, I mean, I also experienced some sexual harassment. You know, I had a, a co-worker that was trying to um, get my attention, even though I had explicitly explained to him, you know, that I was not interested and, and, you know, he did some things and was terminated because of the things he did. And I reported, so I did expect, you know, experience some sexual harassment in my early career as well. 
and you know when you're working around men all the time you you have to uh, grow very thick skin and also you know don't don't be becomes kind of the weaker sex uh, in, in, in a gender sense. Um, you know, when I was in college and when I was in, in my, all, all my career, most of my, you know, friendships and, and relationships in terms of colleagues have been with men. So I, I think I've, I've always, one thing that I've always kept um, as rules for myself, you know, I don't date anybody I work with, you know, I don't uh, go to social gatherings and, and over drink or, or, or behave in a way that's not appropriate um, because all of that gets back to the, the, the work, you know, the work environment, how you behave socially if you're, um, you know, with colleagues or, or people at work. I mean, men, men as are, as are as big gossips as women, sometimes even more, you know, uh, they'll turn a story and make it even worse. Um, you know, and again, in a factory with 10,000 workers and, you know, a ratio of like 10 to one or something like that for women, it's easy uh, for men uh, to assume things, you know. And so, again, I, I always uh, behaved in a way that I would feel comfortable and that also allowed me to be very honest and transparent with my male counterparts and my male friends. Because if they had any questions or they weren't sure about something, you know, uh, there was enough trust that they would ask me, you know, um, things. And, and then I would tell them my opinion, my perspective um, as a woman, right? But I, I never used gender uh, as a, you know, so, sort of as a, as a weapon. Um, I always try to understand also their perspective and their side of things. Um, but I always, again, always, always skipped it in the professional um, sense. And, and even, like I said, even during the times where um, I had to, I had to get to the point of, of filing a sexual harassment uh, complaint, I tried to deal with it on my own first to try to get the gentleman to, you know, to understand and come to terms with it, uh, without having to involve, you know, HR and legal and all these other, I tried because I didn't want to get him in trouble, you know, um, but that didn't work. <laughs> you know, all of my efforts, uh, unfortunately, didn't work, and it got it got a little bit scary. So that again, once he kind of crossed that threshold of safety for me, that's when I said, okay, you know, I've given you every opportunity, and I've tried to tell you in many different ways that this is not appropriate. Um, I'm gonna have to do to do something about it, right? I, I, after I had exhausted all of my options, not to do something you know that was more escalated but uh those are examples again more recently i can't other than you know again yeah i work in an industry that is still very much male dominated there's still misconceptions there's still myths there's still stereotypes um because we still have an aging population in very senior leadership positions across the industry that I still think of in a certain way, but I've also seen a lot of men who have daughters mostly, who want a different world for their daughters. And um, I see them uh, often take, you know, the, the lead and the charge in helping um, the men to kind of, you know, change the way that they think about the role of women, um, both at home and at work. Um, so I, I haven't felt, felt it, like I did, you know, 10, 20 years ago, um, because I think it's more like 
through microaggressions or really honestly just through lack of knowledge or uh, uh, ignorance you know they don't know what they don't know they don't do things again I always take people doing everything with positive intent sometimes they say things or do things that they don't realize are being um, received in a different way than than the way that they meant it right sometimes they don't see the wrong in what they're doing because they they have a blind spot right um, and, and so they're not doing it out of mischief or trying to hurt you they're, they just don't know um, so I think educating uh, uh, our men, you know, and I always say this, you know, the problem with women representation in engineering is not a women problem. It's a men and women problem. And men need to be part of the solution. It can't just rest on the shoulders of women to fix this. You know, men are a big part of the problem as well, and they need to be accountable for their contributions to this lack of representation. Wow, I mean, I love how that you just try to tackle like misconceptions head on. I just, I find that so inspiring. Um, as a, a girl interested in STEM, I just, I, I want to do the same thing, I guess. Like, it's just so inspiring that like you've, like you've made it and you've tackled those problems. And I bet you still face those problems today, but you've- Yeah, you've they're more subtle though these days, right? Because there's, uh, again, it's, it's the awareness about it is, is so huge now with social media and everything, you know, that, um, I, you know, I mean, I am not a, a highly political person, but I mean, just as an example, right? When President Trump uh, took office, he sort of enabled, you know, people to come out of the woodwork and be more genuine about who they were. Whereas before, they would feel that way, but they wouldn't have the courage to, to show their true selves, right, to the world. Um, and so I think there's always a silver lining in everything that happens. Um, I think that allowed us to know really who's who, because people, again, felt more uh, courageous about being the kind of person that <laughs> they've been hiding for so many years. And, and then you can deal with it, right? And then you can confront it and you can address it and you can try to resolve it, at least if you know that it's there. Uh, but if it's hiding, it's hard to, 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 to get at it. Um, I, I always take the approach of wanting to help uh, find common ground, right? We may be different, but we have there's always common ground where we can agree on things. Um, even if, if we don't believe uh, in the same political party or if we don't believe in the same religion or if we don't believe, you know, um, certain cultures and norms apply the same, we can have healthy discussion. We can learn from each other. I, I always take that approach. Again, it would have to be pretty extreme for me to think that something was sexist or, or racist or, you know, I, I always uh, take the side of, uh, you know, they're just ignorant. Uh, they just don't know. I, I, I've helped educate many. I, I remember having a conversation with somebody at, a, at the hair salon um, where they were talking about, you know, and again, sometimes I don't know, I'm an immigrant right off the top about all these, you know, especially in Arizona, but all these Mexicans coming over and taking advantage of all the social services and not contributing and blah, 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 you know, and they were just going on a rant. And I was just listening, you know, to them rant. And then after they were done, I, I asked respectfully, you know, it's like, uh, would you be willing to, to, to hear a different opinion? And, you know, if, uh, in, in that case, you know, the, the gentleman was like open to it. And I said, did you know that, you know, many illegal immigrants uh, with illegal social security numbers are contributing to 
your social security, yet they'll never see a cent. You know, they pay taxes, you know, maybe again, illegally, but they do pay taxes and, and they can't ever claim those taxes. So there, there are things that immigrants contribute uh, that you may not be aware of. And he wasn't aware of those things, right? He hadn't even thought about it. And I said, I mean, uh, you know, and, and again, you, you'll be hard pressed to find a Mexican person who doesn't work. You know, they're not out begging. They're not out robbing. They're, you know, again, in general, I'm talking, right? I mean, they, the, the, one, of the, the, one of the things about, that's beautiful, I think, about the Mexican culture is that we work ethic, you know, in, in, in that same, you know, pride that we have from our culture uh, doesn't allow us to uh, take um, charity too, too, too well. You know, if somebody offers us, it's like, okay, what can I do for you? You know, how can I work this off? Um, is, is kind of part of the general culture. Again, there's always bad people in every culture. That's, that's for sure. But to generalize it to an entire population based on, you know, just what you've heard and, and never really having experienced it yourself is, is a little bit uh, unfair, you know? And like I said, I tried to, and that's also why I went back to school because I remember a lot of my guy friends who are engineers, again, they would use the same type of um, narratives like, oh, well, girls just don't want to take hard classes or, oh, girls just don't like math. Oh, you know, girls are not set, set up for engineering. And I'm like, how do you know? I said, what girls? And, and they would go, well, you know, look, look, look at what's happening. And, and, and I wouldn't have any tools to, to defend that or to, to debate it even, you know, cause I had no knowledge. Uh, I, I, it was just like, I don't think so, you know, but then they would go, well, what proof do you have? You know, and I was like, well, let me go get you some proof, <laughs> you know, <laughs> those kinds of things. But, um, but again, there's always bad apples in, in an orchard and, and uh, it, you know, if you only listen to those bad apples, you know, you'll, you'll be depressed all the time in an engineering uh, role or in a science role. You always have to uh, think about, okay, you know, how can I turn this person around? How can I help them? And how can they help me understand their point of view as well? Because I mean, their point of view didn't just, you know, appear by magic. They had, ha they had to have certain experiences that got them to believe what they believe. And maybe they had some negative experiences, you know, but they, like, like my supervisor at Xerox, you know, he had one negative experience and then he sort of used that as a blanket, uh, you know, perception and stereotype of who he thought Mexican people were. Um, and, and so I always try to, to, to bring it down to the individual, because again, even as individuals, we have a lot of intersecting identities, you know, it's not just one thing. And I often find that even with people where we like bump heads all the time, I always try to find um, that common ground. Um, I'll give you another story. I had an engineer um, at Intel that refused, refused to share his data with me, you know, and, and, and he really he was required to because I was the industrial engineer for his area. And every time I would ask him for data, he would ignore me, just ignore me, ignore me. And I couldn't do my job. And at first I took the, the probably the not best approach, which was, oh, well, you don't want to give me your data? I'm going to go talk to his manager and his manager's manager and anybody else who will force him to give me his data whether he likes it or not, right? That was the approach. It's like, oh yeah, okay, you know, this is what I can do and just kind of go to toe, toe to toe. And of course that created more tension and more friction in the relationship. 
And I, and I did that for like years. <laughs> I'm like, this wasn't just, you know, a few weeks or days. And I couldn't get through. You know, I couldn't break through to him, you know, that we, we were a team and that we needed to work together. And so I'm like, okay, I give up, you know, this um, fight of, of, of power, you know, because it was a power, a power struggle. Um, and again, I, I would never, I would have never understood this if I hadn't gone back to school and figured it out. Um, but it was a power struggle. I, I wanted power, he wanted power, and, and we couldn't share in that power. So I started talking to people who got along with them. And I'm like, how, how can you get along with this person? You know, I can't find a way to break through. And, and they just said, well, you know, have you, have you taken the time to get to know him as a person? Outside of, you know, just outside of his title, outside of his position, outside of his role. And I'm like, no, you know, I, I don't think I have. So the next time I met with them, I was like intentional. I'm like, we're not going to talk about work. Um, and, and again, this was a man, again, who believed that he had all this power and, and, and he wanted uh, control, you know, so they, I took a different approach. And, and so the next time I met with them, I, 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 I brought down, you know, kind of my own wall and resistance. And I asked them to mentor me. I said, you know, help me, help me understand, you know, you are so knowledgeable of, you know, he was a process engineer at the time. It's like, I want to learn. I, I want to, you know, grow up to be you. And, and, you know, so I started to stroke his ego a little bit and that kind of calmed him down. And then we started talking about things we had in common. And I found that he was a big, um, he, he, he liked movies, you know, he was into movies and watching movies and, uh, and I'm like, oh, so am I, you know, let's talk about what movies have you watched recently? And, and so we started having that conversation and that relationship. And I'll tell you, after that meeting, he goes, what data do you need? You know, <laughs> um, it was incredible. I, I, I think, I think, again, you sometimes forget that at the end of the day, people are people, regardless of their titles or their positions inside a company. Um, you know, once you find that, that common ground, whether it's uh, something that's work-related or not, you start to form those trusting relationships, you know? And once you have that trusted relationship, people are more willing to, to work with you and help you be successful. So again, I, I think in, in a world of engineering, you know, uh, males are not our enemy. Uh, we just need to figure out how to work with them and, and not generalize. Again, I, I treat every individual um, as, as much as I can, the way they want to be treated. Um, and I learn from them and I always give them permission that if I do anything that offends them or, or, or it's, 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 it's received the wrong way to call me on it, you know, and, and help me understand. So uh, I think um, that has a lot to do with my own experiences in engineering is I've evolved as a person, um, but only because I've learned either on the job or I've been illuminated through my education in some way. Yeah, that 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 was that was an amazing story. My mom always always tells me that relationships are so important. Like even in work, like you're saying at school, family, just relationships are very important. And I also really liked the salon story. I think I also think it's really important that when people have beliefs, they're not in this sort of like echo chamber of just reinforcing their own beliefs. And I think that's a really good model for us to if we disagree with someone, 
we can respectfully tell them why and sort of get a debate going um, mm -hmm. rather than have them reinforce that belief. I, yeah, I think that's a really great model. Yeah. And so our very last question, and then we're done. I don't want to, we want to be respectful of your time. I'm, I'm okay. Um, okay, great. So it's kind of like a double question, um, but you could sort of tackle either one or both. So the first one is, if you could say anything, this is kind of a tough one. If you could say anything, what would you say to your high school or teenage self? And then the second one is, do you have any advice for girls or students um, who want to get involved in your field of interest. Um, so if you want to tackle both, one or the other, um, yeah. You know, I, I think if I had to do things over, you know, again, if I were to give advice to my high school self, um, it probably would have been to um, be more fearless. Um, I, 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 was, I was always afraid because, um, you know, I was afraid to talk. Um, people thought that I, you know, it was so funny. My my last year in, in, in as a senior, you know, when you have your your uh, what is it annual your yearbook, um, yeah. and you go around and have people sign it or whatever, you know. Uh, again, I don't even know if that's a practice anymore, but it was a big practice back then. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, you had your yearbook and you wanted people to sign it, and uh, I had learned enough English right to get by, but. I, I got a little bit more confident uh, towards the end of my senior year. This is after four years of high school. And I remember people telling me, oh my God, we thought you were so stuck up because you didn't talk to anybody. And we just thought that you thought you were higher and mighty and, 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 and better than everybody. And that's why you didn't talk to us. And I said, no, actually the reason I didn't talk is because I was afraid I was gonna say something and come out the wrong way or people would make fun of my accent or you know I was very um you know self-aware that that if I said the wrong thing I didn't want to be ridiculed I didn't want to be made fun of and and so I just basically kept to myself and I didn't talk very much but it's again those perceptions you know of people who thought uh you know I didn't talk to them because I thought I was better than them and that was never the case um and so I, I would say to just be more uh, willing to take uh, a little bit more risk uh, with with people, you know. I I had I didn't have as much problem taking risks in life in general, but when it came to people, I was very um, uh, protective of myself, um, and I didn't develop trust in relationships. I think I had like two friends in high school uh, in all of my years that I could really call friends. Um, and then I just, you know, and that was a realization that I had even, you know, but after I graduated. So in college, I tried to be a lot more uh, of an extrovert versus an introvert. So that's that's the only, I, I think one of the key advices is just to trust people a little more. Um, you know, I was again, very blessed that I had a lot of people who helped me um, along the way, um, but I, I, I think that this was my fate, you know, to, to become an engineer, to live engineering, to understand what engineering was about, to go through an engineering education. So then in my second part of my career, I could then talk about it from a firsthand experience, you know, having gone through it myself. Um, maybe the only other piece of advice that I would have given myself is to, um, 
know, know more about what I wanted to do, right? Because again, I, I was more of a, and I don't know if I can say this, but I felt like a victim of circumstance to some extent. I let things happen to me versus me making things happen. Um, and so I, I just went with the flow, you know, it's like, hey, any opportunity that came my way, you know, I try to take advantage, but I didn't know what I was, I was aiming for. Um, I think the only big goal that I had, you know, uh, early on when I was in high school is I didn't want to be poor, you know, so getting out of poverty, you know, however I could get out of poverty in a legal way uh, was really kind of like my goal is to, to be a, an independent, self-reliant person, didn't have to rely on a husband, on a boyfriend, on a mother or a father or family member. To, to provide for me. I wanted to be independent. And so, um, again, I think being more trusting and giving people um, the benefit of the doubt at some, at some points, um, and then also to be more fearless. So I think that answers part of your question. But I, I also think that, you know, again, my life took these turns and twists for a reason because I wouldn't be here today otherwise. Um, the second one, I, I, I'm sorry, I forgot the question. It, what advice would I give? Yes. What advice would I give to people? Um, you know, and I talk to a lot of um, young people. And when I say young people, I mean, you are young people, but I talk to elementary school kids, middle school kids, you know, high school students. Mm -hmm. um, again, if I, if I were to go back and, and think about what advice, you know, is again, don't let anybody tell you what you should or shouldn't do. Um, I remember, you know, because a lot of people say, oh, well, you have to, you have to be really good at math um, to do engineering. No, you don't. You have to love math to do engineering. No, you don't. I didn't like math, yet here I am. You have to think about things differently. Um, I never enjoy math um, in college. I probably enjoyed math to some extent in high school, but not in college. It got really difficult for me. I couldn't figure it out in my head. And I struggled. I struggled a lot. I work hard. Um, but if somebody had told me, if you don't like math, you can't be an engineer. And I believed it. Again, I wouldn't be sitting here. So the way that I thought about it is like math is a tool. You know, uh, it helps me exercise my brain just like, you know, a treadmill helps you exercise your body. I don't have to like math. I just need to know how to use it. Just like I don't need to learn how to use a hammer, you know, I just need to know how to use it. Um, so I started to think of, of math and physics. Physics was also, you know, just really challenging for me. But I knew, again, these were tools. So I was just learning all the tools available to me because engineering itself is about solving problems and figuring out what tools you need to solve the problem. So once I got past, you know, I mean, even chemistry, I, I enjoyed chemistry, but I wasn't really good at it, you know? And so all of the things that people put in your brain that, oh, if you don't, if you don't do well in science and math and physics, you can't be an engineer, that's not true. All it means is that if you don't like them or if you're not as uh, uh, equipped, you know, as other people are to, to get through that, you just have to work a little harder at that to, to understand it because when you get to the engineering part, I loved it, you know, I loved engineering. I did so well in my classes. I enjoyed my classes because it was about solving problems. 
Um, but it, it had, it, I had to go through that first phase in order to get to that second phase. And a lot of, a lot of people think that if you can't get through the first phase, you can never become an engineer. And, and I tried to dispel those myths. Um, that, that's really uh, one of the, the things that I, uh, I, I, I use as my main objectives is to dispel myths when I talk to young people. So don't let anybody tell you, you know, uh, what you need to, to become what you want. And then the other thing is, again, a lot of kids don't know what engineers are. They don't, you know, you can't picture in your head and I always tell them, you know, um, think of a time where you were at home and something broke and you needed to fix it and you went and fixed it. That's engineering. You know, think of a time when you find yourself in trouble and you need to get out of that situation and you kind of figure out a way to do it. That's engineering. So we're born engineers by nature. I mean, humans find ways to survive and, and fix problems every day. Um, so we're engineers by nature. Um, and, and so... Um, the other thing that I tell young people is, you know, everybody hammers into you, like you were saying, Amanda and Erica, it's like, you have to choose a major, you have to choose a career now and you have, have to make all these decisions. No, you don't. <laughs> I was telling um, people, especially young people, engineering, it's a tool. Engineering it's a way to approach life in general. And I describe it as the, the golden movie ticket. With an engineering degree, you can do anything you want. You can start your own business. You can go into business. You can be a lawyer. You can um, uh, be a dancer. You know, I, I met this young lady who went to go into theater. And, and so she started with a theater degree and then realized that she could, uh, really elevate, you know, her 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 um, her art and her her passion. If she learned some ways to use engineering and then bring that into the dance, you know, like the costumes and 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 things that I don't know if you guys ever watch <laughs> America's Got Talent, but some of the things that people do with basic engineering, you know, knowledge is amazing because now again you're 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 connecting art and engineering i mean you can become a doctor once you have an engineering degree you can do anything you want it gives you the tools you need to be successful in life no matter like i said that golden movie ticket you can go watch any movie that you want but you need that golden ticket um and so i always think when you're not sure what you want to do think about what you love to do sports you name it. I mean, you name anything and I can find you a way that you can connect engineering to that because engineering, all it is, is how to innovate, how to make it better, how to solve a problem. And, and, uh, in any, in any field, um, you know, I know that, uh, engineering gives you that little boost. So if everybody else in medical school comes with a biology degree, and that is the only thing that they bring, there are millions of kids who bring a biology degree. And when it comes time to select, they're going to look for what makes you different, what sets you apart, what makes you unique. And again, you may get a general engineering or a bioengineering undergraduate degree, and that will give you that boost to, to get you to medical school if that's what you want. Um, so I think engineering, can get, again, gives you a certain advantage in life, uh, no matter what career you, cho you choose to pursue. Again, whether it's in arts, whether it's in education, whether it's in um, 
you know, in technology, in law. I mean, there's a lot of patent lawyers that are engineers. Um, so it just really depends. And that's what I tell kids, you know, don't limit yourself to anything. Combine uh, what you love and figure out how to use technology to help you. Um, because again, we are all sur surrounded by technology all the time. And rather than having to make a choice, it's not a, uh, you know, it's no longer this or that, it's now this and that. You can, you can combine, you can bring it together, you can do both. You don't have to choose one thing, do what you wanna do but figure out a way that is gonna make you successful in life, right? Because again, you can't just choose to, uh, like I used to tell people, I, I, I thought I was gonna become a, a landscaper at, at, at one point in, in, when I was in college because I saw this guy raking leaves, not worrying about tests, not worrying about making money, not worrying about anything. He was just happy raking leaves. And I'm like, I'm just gonna go do that. You know, I mean, I don't have to have a lot of money. Money doesn't mean a lot to me, even though I did wanna get out of poverty. I said, but I know how to be poor already, you know, and if I don't have all this stress, you know, of tests and exams and, and papers and grades, and I just want to be whistling and raking leaves. I mean, if that was, if that's what makes you happy, I, you know, if I had gone and done that, I probably would have come up with a rake, uh, you know, that, that did all the work. And I just like a robot, you know, or, because I would have, I would have always been thinking about how to improve something. Mm -hmm. um, but if that's what you want to do, then go do it, but, you know, make it better, make it better uh, using technology. Um, anything that you can think of, you, you can improve upon and, 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 and you can use your engineering uh, training to, to help you figure out what tools you need to, to make that contribution. Um, because the last thing I'll say, you know, is um, I'm, I'm an unmarried woman. You know, I was married, I'm divorced. I, I've been divorced for many years. I don't have children. So that is uh, something also that's unique to me. And I always thought, what's my legacy, right? What's gonna happen when I pass on and there's no, you know, there's no tree, you know, no branch coming from me. Um, what is gonna, you know, what contribution am I making to this world? And if I can help somebody, you know, make better decisions, you know, I always also try not to, push people, oh, you have to do engineering. No, you don't. But you need to have the information to make the best decision that you can for yourself. Even if engineering is not for you, you at least know why. Versus I think right now, a lot of people shy away from engineering because they don't know what it is. So it's out of ignorance more, more so. So I, I'm a, a big proponent of making informed decisions. It doesn't have to be one that I want but it has to be one that is best for you. But you have to have the information to make that decision um, so that later in life, you're not like, if I had only known that, you know, I would have made a different choice. Um, so I always encourage people to uh, learn and to find information and to become educated about the options that they have so that they can make better decisions in life and, and hopefully have a more productive and 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 you know, um, I don't know, self-fulfilling life. I, um, so my, again, my, my way of leaving a print, a footprint is by helping others. You know, that's, that's the way that I'm going to do this. And that's what I've chosen for myself. So I'll, I'll leave it at that. <laughs> yeah. And, and even, 
for myself, I'm sure Erica feels the same way, but right now I feel, I feel really inspired. I feel empowered. I feel energized just from speaking to you. And the fact that you speak to elementary schools, middle schools, um, I think you're already making a huge impact and contribution to the next generation as it is for doing things Thank like this. You. And this, this blog post that's going to come out, more girls are going to read it. And I'm, I'm just, I don't think you need to worry about a legacy <laughs> or not. I think you're definitely smashed out of the park. So um, thank you so much again for your time. Absolutely. I'm so excited for this. Absolutely. It was a pleasure. Again, anytime, anytime you, you know how to get a hold of me, if you have any questions or if you just need a sounding board uh, or, you know, a different perspective, um, feel free to reach out. Thank yeah, you so much. Uh, we really appreciate uh, that. Oh, I just want to let you know that like engineering is definitely one of the options for me now. I just, you <laughs> I, I, like direct impact to me just right now. So you definitely are going to leave a legacy, at least on me. Oh, well, great. Like I said, just consider it because I'm sure that you can find a way to connect uh, again, whatever you're passionate about. Um, just one other thing I'll, I'll, I'll just mention to you, because this is, this is a really hard question. I, I, I think it's asked all the time. What is your passion? And you're like, I don't know. How do I know? You know, how do I find out? And I'll tell you what it was for me. And, and that's when it kind of clicked for me. I used to work in the factory. You know, again, I, I did engineering for many years. The, the, the fabrication factories um, at Intel are 24-7, 365. I mean, they're always running. And I used to be an engineer there. So I was always on call at night, during weekends. I had no life. I mean, it was all about the factory, keeping the machines running. Um, so sometimes I would have 18 hour days or 28 hour days, you know, inside the factory all this time. And I would get home very tired. And, and again, the kind of job is, is not only uh, physically exhausting, but it was also intellectually exhausting. So I would feel like a, like a raisin by the time I get home, just <laughs> squeezed out. And, and I would lay my head down and I would get a call or an email from somebody saying, hey, you know, Gabby, uh, we have a class of fifth graders that would love to talk to you about engineering. And I said, what time do I need to be there? <laughs> you know? Wow. And so I knew, <laughs> and, and you know, even back from college, I used to, you know, Seattle is, is the state of Washington is divided by the Cascade Mountains in the middle and, and the uh, climate is very different between Seattle and Eastern Washington. So Western Washington, Eastern Washington. Eastern Washington is most uh, mostly agricultural. Um, the apples, you know, Washington apples, Washington strawberries, all of those things. Um, and there's a lot of immigrant families, uh, Mexican laborers that migrate to Eastern Washington to work in the field, as we call in the field. I used to do that too when I was growing up. Um, I picked berries and I picked uh, apples and I picked blueberries and all kinds of things. So that's why I also knew I didn't want to do that because that was very exhausting work. Uh, but um, I used to, during our spring break, instead of like going to Cancun and having a party, we would go to Eastern Washington and we would go talk to kids in middle school, high school. And then at night we would have these parent awareness nights where we would talk to the parents of the kids um, who were migrant workers. Because again, if you think about migrant workers, they're a family unit. And as a family, they work together. So the kids from these families would get up at like five in the morning, go work in the field, then go to school, 
then come back from school, then work in the field, and then still try to do homework. So again, you know, a whole different life than most kids, you know, that get home, do their homework, play video games, you know, watch TV, enjoy maybe a, a, a sport activity. I mean, you know, with more privileged families. So these particular families, they depended on the income from all of their kids to survive. How could they let them go to college and not contribute to the family? You know, that was a loss of income for the family. And so we had to talk to a lot of these parents about, you know, is, is the short-term sacrifice for the longer-term gain. You want your kids to do better than you, right? And, and, and again, especially the, the dads had a hard time letting their girls go away to college too. They wanted to keep them in the house, right? Or close by under their supervision. So, uh, you know, knowing that I've done that for free all my life, you know, as a volunteer after hours of, uh, in, during my career when I was an engineer, um, that also helped me to understand that this was my passion. This is the work that you're willing to do without getting paid. Mm -hmm. And you yeah. are willing to put in as many hours as you need to without getting paid. So if you think about that, I'm sure there's something in your life that you'd be willing to do without getting paid. That's your passion. Now, how did you connect that to something that actually helps you earn money for a living, mm -hmm. right? Um, so I learned that much later in life. Again, I wish somebody would have explained it to me a lot sooner. And I, I, I mean, I, I probably would have taken a different path, but I also believe that if I did, I wouldn't be here today. So, you know, I think, again, things happen for a reason. Yeah. yeah. I, I, oh, about that. Go ahead, Erica. Sorry. Oh, you're good. I'll just be thinking of that. Like, like that's so, like, thought-provoking. I just, yeah, I'm definitely going to be thinking about my passions now, based on you. Yeah, think about what, again, because once, once you start working, you work for the rest of your life, right? To earn a living, to, to make ends meet, to have a house, to have a car, to have you know, things in life. And uh, you need to, to, to be in a job or a career that is rewarding for you. Otherwise it's gonna suck every day. You're not mm -hmm. gonna wanna get up in the morning and go to work, you know, if it's just about the money. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I, I also have been struggling to define passion. Um, is it like something you enjoy doing or are there different like nuances to it? So I, I really like that. That definition and then being able to connect to your passion to your work that's sort of when you hit gold and um i yeah i i love that thank you so much for sharing with us absolutely um, like i said anytime i'm i'm here for you what an amazing and insightful conversation with dr gabriella gonzalez she is such an amazing woman that really left myself and erica really inspired and energized to continue on our path to a stem career we hope you enjoyed season one, episode one of Dance Talk with Dr. Gabriela Gonzalez, and we'll take her advice in the future. To learn more about I Dream of Dance, please visit idreamofdance.org.